We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. He was the one who got him going. Reddick walked off to start the inning. Springer struck out. And then Altuve got him. Houston Astros win game one. It's two victory for the Astros over the Rays. Justin Furlander with his 14th career postseason win. Major League Baseball playoffs in full swing. Four glorious games yesterday, Bruce. And uh, hey, Justin Verlander's good. And you he think? was awfully good uh, in his start for the Astros. But no worries. I'm sure their number two starter's a big drop-off. No. Okay, Garrett Cole goes in game two. I'm sure the number three guy stinks, though. Yeah, but you know, the Cy Young Award winner for the Tampa Rays is going from last year is going tonight in Snell. So that's not too bad either. As we segue into bringing in a good friend of ours, the voice of the Tampa Rays, Chicagoan and longtime friend and colleague Dave Wills joins us on Inside the Clubhouse. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, guys. How we doing? Good. Uh, tough game yesterday. It was uh, a pretty close game for a while. And then, uh, as your manager said, said uh, you were Verlander yesterday. Yeah, we were. I mean, they're good, and he's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, that's there's a reason why I think they won 107 games. And, uh, uh, you know, we just have not been able to get to them all season long. We faced them on opening day, and I think uh, on about the fourth pitch, Austin Meadows took it out of the ballpark, and uh, we had an early lead on opening day, but uh, then he shut us down the rest of that way. We saw him again uh, a little bit later on in the season in a regular season game at Bay Park, and I think he lasted uh, four innings or five innings there before he got kicked out of the ball game, but we got nothing against him then. And uh, yesterday, I don't think he was as sharp as uh, he had been maybe in the previous two starts. And I think, you know, again, uh, Tommy Pham had a real tough at bat in that first at bat. After the walk to Meadows, he had him uh, where he was, uh, you know, looking for a breaking ball. And Tommy can hit the ball hard, but he also hits the ball hard on the ground. And he had 22 double plays that he dropped, bounced into this season, and he bounced into a, a tough one in the first inning. And I think that kind of set the tone for the rest of the way. Tyler Glasnow tried to match him pitch for pitch, but, uh, you know, again, uh, they've got a three-headed monster you guys were alluding to that uh, uh, they can send out there on any given day here with uh, Verlander, Cole, and then Granke. I'd like our chances, too, if our guys were healthy and stretched out, but uh, I think yesterday, again, Tyler went for as long as he could, got a little wobbly with that four-pitch walk to Reddick to start the frame, and then uh, 97 and up. Most guys aren't going to be able to get to it, but Jose Altuve did, and uh, that was the beginning of the end. Yeah, if you guys, if you guys could have been set up and gone ahead with, uh, you know, Morton and Tyler and and Snell in whatever order, fully stretched, it might have been, might have been, a, it might be a very different kind of series. Hey, Dave Wills, would you zoom out and kind of educate our audience a little bit? Cub fans who are interested in in how you put together a winning team, White Sox fans who are watching a rebuild. What has been the philosophy that has worked so brilliantly on the cheap for Eric Neander and that front office? Yeah, I, I think if I could bottle it up, I'd sell it because uh, huh. you know even even being as close as we are, sometimes uh, you're still kind of scratching your head and wondering how you do it. But uh, I think it starts with run prevention. Um, that's the way it's been 
uh, going back to the days when Andrew Friedman took over the baseball operations in 06 and got the team to the World Series in 08 and a very uh, inexpensive payroll. And, uh, you know, it starts with pitching, and then you add defense to it. And I still think that our defense has some work to do. You guys saw it firsthand yesterday on the yeah. pop-up out there uh, at a shallow right field that Austin Meadows probably should have taken full control of and came in to make the play and call up Brandon Lau. But, uh, you know, run prevention, we used 33 pitchers this year. I mean, how in the world do you lead major or the American League and be second in Major League Baseball in earned run average when you have to throw 33 pitchers out on any given season? And, uh, you know, like I said, it starts with uh, some of the uh, run prevention philosophies. Uh, it starts with the development, obviously. And then uh, Kyle Snyder, our pitching coach, along with Kevin Cash, who I think masterfully uses our bullpen, uh, put it all together. But, uh, you know, it is about the elevated fastball. We uh, we look for guys who can have some run to the fastball up in the zone. And then, obviously, I know people hate hearing all the analytical terms, but it does have something to do with a little spin rate to get that run at the top of the zone and then put a little bend to a pitch down and away. So uh, that's kind of our formula. Uh, like I said, I, I can't believe a team uses 33 pitchers and can still finish first in the American League in ERA, but somehow, some way, the Rays did it this season. Avisel Garcia has been a part of your mix this year, had a productive year. What have you seen from Garcia? Because, uh, you know, there were certainly a lot of mixed reviews about his uh, effort here and the results uh, from Garcia with the White Sox. Oh, he's been tremendous. Uh, he's been a a leader for some of the young players on this team, too. And uh, I think the biggest thing, Bruce, and uh, Matt, is that he stayed healthy uh, for the most part. He's had uh, he had a little issue with vertigo toward the end of the season where he uh, had trouble staying on the field for a couple of games. But uh, for the most part, we've been able to keep his uh, legs healthy. And, uh, you know, it's it's led to a 20-homer season plus uh, a plus defender at times out there in right field. And, you know, for a big guy, he can get down the line as well as anybody on our team and go first to third. So, I think the biggest key for Avi this year has been that uh, he has definitely stayed healthy. Our training staff has done a nice job of, uh, again, picking spots where he can DH here uh, a time or two maybe during the week to get him off his feet, especially when you play uh, a number of games on the carpet like he does at Tropicana Field. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I've always liked him from afar. I liked him when he first came up with the Tigers, and I thought it was a very astute deal when the White Sox were able to pick him up and uh, – he just, you know, again, I, I, maybe it's because he was the the little mig or mini Miggy or little yeah. Miggy, and never lived up to that moniker. I think people were waiting for him to be, you know, the three twenty hitter with thirty five, forty homers and one hundred twenty runs batted in. Well, he, he he was the mini version of that. Uh, and this year we got twenty home runs out of him. He hit, you know, in the two seventies, two eighties, and and drove in a number of runs for us. So he's been he, he's been everything I think uh, we could have asked for uh, Avi to be this season and he's been I don't want to call him a pleasant surprise because like I said I've always expected him to be a pretty good player and this year he was uh Dave uh Charlie Morton seems to be that that true um archetype of what so many teams want let me go get the veteran starter who's durable and smart and has been on good organizations. He's pitched in big games. Oh, and he's willing to share what he's learned and be a mentor in a very effective way. Uh, you know, we've all seen this kind of trope play out all over baseball. The White Sox are looking for their guy to that they can sign to bring in. But what has Charlie Morton meant to that pitching staff? Everything. I mean, we I, you probably wouldn't be talking to me today if it wasn't for Charlie Morton because we would not be in the ALDS without what he has done this season he's the the lone guy in the starting rotation that had the ball in march and is still pitching here 
in October all the way through. I mean, uh, you know, everybody else spent some time on the IL. Blake Snell was on it twice. Tyler Glasnow was on it for almost three or four months. Uh, Yanni Torino spent time on it. And so uh, he, he's been, you know, when, when the Rays reach into the checkbook and spend $15 million a year on a guy, uh, we can't miss. And uh, I'm sure we were looking at a guy like Charlie Morton to be exactly what you just said. Check all those boxes. Be a guy that can uh, be a, a top-of-the-rotation type pitcher. Be a guy that's going to give us a lot of innings. Be a guy that's going to uh, guide some of the young pitchers because he's been there, done that. And we didn't have anybody on our team that had been there, done that as much as Charlie has. I mean, every time you think about, well, you know, is Charlie going to be flustered by the situation? Charlie Morton pitched, started a Game 7 of a championship series and was on the mound for the final outs of a World Series for a Game 7. So, Nobody's been there, done that more than Charlie Morton has, and uh, and he's also come up from a guy uh, that was a you know pretty good prospect with the Atlanta Braves that kind of sort of missed with them, missed a bit with the Pirates, who found new life with the Astros, and it's continuing to have a uh, great run here with the Rays. Uh, like I said, we wouldn't be where we're at right now if it weren't for Charlie Morton. That's why he was named one of our co-MVPs of this uh, 2019 season. Oakland's favorite son, Dave Wills. Luke Allen. <laughs> one of the, one of Oakland's favorite okay. sons, right. Dave Wills, <laughs> best friend of Luke and Ellis, joins us on Inside the Clubhouse for a few more minutes. And Dave, uh, tell tell us about the, the Tampa market because we understand they don't draw, but we also understand that the ratings for listening to you on the radio, listening to the TV broadcasts, are extremely high. How do we get our heads around? What is happening there, and what's it going to take for that area to continue to be able to support Major League Baseball? Yeah, it's all our fault. We can't get them off their couches or <laughs> out of their cars to come to the ballpark because they love listening and watching oh, Absolutely. Us. We understand you that. Know. <laughs> uh, you know, it, I think the first thing you have to do is sit there and say, all right, uh, take Tropicana Field and draw a 30-minute circle around it. And when you do that, you realize that uh, within 30 minutes of uh, Tropicana Field, that area is about three-fifths water. Uh, it's, it's surrounded by the bay on one side, by the gulf on the other. And, uh, you know, for me, and I, I, I say this ad nauseum, I still totally believe that if we can move a ballpark to the Tampa side where there are more moms, dads, Wallies, and the Beavers that uh, have the type of money to go to ball games a little more often, and you would open up the Orlando corridor uh, a little bit more, I think baseball would thrive in Tampa. I, I don't think it would be, I know it wouldn't be, a Boston or a Cubs or anything like that, or the Cardinals, where you'd be getting close to 3 million people. But I do believe we'd be getting a heck of a lot close to 2 million people, which would make us a little more competitive and allow us to spend a few more bucks. Uh, we, we just got a new TV deal that's going to uh, pay the team a heck of a lot more money. But, uh, you know, it still counts to get fannies in the seats. And I truly believe that if there was a way to move the ballpark, even just the 25 minutes uh, east into the city of Tampa, uh, I've heard people from our sponsorships or corporate partners tell me that, you know, when it comes to going to a lightning game, which is in downtown Tampa, uh, there are people that live in Orlando or uh, even, you know, somewhere between Orlando and Tampa will go to a lightning game Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. But they will only go to a Rays game on Saturday and Sunday because it's an extra hour and a half to get through uh, Tampa one way and back through Tampa the other way. So, uh whether or not that's going to happen, uh, we, we had a nice little ballpark drawn up last year for an area in Ybor City that uh, has kind of fallen to the wayside because we ran out of time to talk to them. So right now we're in uh, conversations with the uh, city of St. Petersburg to kind of open that up a little bit. I know there's a thought process of splitting the season between 
uh, Tampa Bay and in, in, in Montreal. Uh, it, it's it's far fetched, but if there's an organization that's ever going to look into something like that, it would be the Tampa Bay Rays. But I I personally still think that something built in the city of Tampa would really really help this franchise out a lot. Hey, hey Dave, you've been there for a long time since 2005, right? Yep. Um, yep. 15 years. When Joe Madden left and they were interviewing managers, Doug Glanville um, said this last week uh, on the radio station that when he was interviewing for that job. All the questions were about what kind of culture would you build it, it, to, to a point that he was kind of surprised because you would think that Joe Madden, you know, would leave a good culture behind. I guess I'm wondering, as the Cubs are looking in a post Joe Madden life, how was it for Tampa in a post Joe Madden life? What did they have to do? <laughs> no, obviously not, nothing, <laughs> uh, you know, just find better players. Uh, you know, when, when Kevin Cash came aboard, I think there was, uh, you know, some talk about, well, you know, Joe did this and Joe did that. I think there were a couple of moments where Kevin kind of looked and said, well, maybe, you know, I need to do a little bit more of uh, of this or less of this. I think, you know, there were some guys that, uh, you know, had some, uh, I wouldn't say sour feelings about the Joe because Joe did have the spotlight. Joe was the face of the Tampa Bay Rays right up until he left in 2014. It wasn't a player. Evan Longoria was a tremendous player, but, he, you know, he, he still wasn't the face of the franchise Joe was. So I think, you know, what Kevin did is he kind of stepped back let the play, some of the players uh, go into the spotlight, much to their chagrin sometimes now, because now they have to talk to the media and, and deal with the media a little more often. So uh, Joan created a culture here that, uh, you know, again, winning was is fun. And winning was a big part of Joe putting banners up in uh, left field uh, in 08, 10, 11, and 13 as a division champ, and then later on as wildcard champ. So, uh, you know, I'm still kind of flabbergasted that the Cubs feel that they have to make a move. Now, I've talked to Joe a little bit here over the last couple of weeks, and uh, he's in a good place, and he's looking forward to his next challenge. But uh, I, I don't think it was Joe Madden that went out and, and, and bought relievers for a team that should be shopping at Nordstrom that was shopping at Nordstrom Rack, and uh, it just kind of <laughs> left me head, scratching my head. So uh, what Joe built in Tampa Bay is continuing now. Uh, we got back to the postseason for the first time since Joe left uh, in 2013. He, he managed one more year in 14, but uh, – I don't know what kind of culture you want to change because you put a World Series banner up for the first time in 108 years if you're a Cub fan. And if you're a Rays fan, you want to get back to what Joe was doing. And I think Kevin really has done that. Kevin has really become a tremendous big league manager in his handling of the bullpen. And also, for that matter, when you're dealing with a front office that uh, it has their hands on all kinds of things like they do now, you've got to deal with what they're giving you and you've got to deal with the players and how they accept it. And uh, it's not an easy gig to do, but... Uh, Kevin has done that for the Rays, and I know Joe left that kind of uh, philosophy and that, pro- that thought process with the Cubs for sure. Well, Z, when you say you're scratching your head, that, that's a big deal because it's a size eight. It's a, it's a, it, well, seven and three quarters. Well, but, uh, you can yeah, come on. It's, it, it's a, it is a big head, but no, I, I just, <laughs> uh, and it is a seven and three quarters. I'm telling you, it's smaller yeah, than Bruce I, I know you're in the big head club. You're there with the. Uh, Faye Vincent and Gary Hughes and uh, Bruce Bochy. It's a yeah. it's a very famous club. <laughs> you could wear yeah, an eight. Well, you could wear an eight comfortably, Wilsey. You could admit uh, well, that. I, as long as I don't, you know, if I let my hair grow a little bit, I guess, <laughs> sure. Wilsey, uh, you've been around covering baseball for a long time. You've been very accomplished. What you've done forever. How much impact? How many games do you think a manager impacts? Now, I'll I'll preface that by saying to you, I've talked to a lot of players. And they can't give that answer, but they can say that a manager can lose a hell of a lot more games than they can win uh, if they're not proficient at what they do. Oh, I, I think that's probably the better way to put it. And I think the 
that's a big reason why the New York Mets are probably looking for a manager right now. Is that uh, you know Mickey Calloway probably lost a, a lot of games and some of his uh, dealings. I, I think that's a big reason why we are where we're at. Uh, I think Kevin Cash has masterfully used our, our bullpen this year. And I mean, again, how many teams can have just one starter uh, last throughout the year and get to the postseason and win 96 games like the Rays did and utilize 33 different pitchers? Uh, your manager has to be doing something right. So, uh, you know, it's it, it, in the American League, without all the double switches and everything else like that, you are going to be judged by how you use a bullpen and how you manage a bullpen. And, uh, to, to again, like I said, go through 33 pitchers like the Rays did in a uh, rebuilding of a bullpen when we picked up Nick Anderson at the trade deadline. We were able to maneuver a few guys around, bringing up a common pochet from the minor leagues to supplement a guy, Emilio Pagan, who's closing out games for us that didn't even make the team out of spring training. Uh, uh, Kevin Cash has done a tremendous, tremendous job. And I, I, like I said, I don't know, Bruce, you, you, you said it. I don't know if you can quantify the amount of wins that means on a plus side, but you can definitely tell if they're not doing it the right way, how many wins can uh, lead to a, the bad side. But I also will say this, show me a good manager, and I'll show you a good bullpen too. And right now our bullpen's been doing a wonderful job. And is it because of how Kevin uses it, or is it because the bullpen guys are getting the job done? And you might be able to say it's a little bit of both. Absolutely. Dave, uh, all the best to you and the Rays. Uh, you know, as Matt pointed out, it gets it gets easier because you got Cole tonight, right? And uh we got him right where we want him. We got him right where we want him. And uh, I, I, if we go back, if we can get back to Tropicana Field one and one, I'll be ecstatic. Yeah, so you'll thank be you very much. It. All right, thanks for having me. Take care, Dave Wills, the voice of the Tampa Rays, joining us, Chicago's own Dave Wills, uh, who terrific guy, and as you hear, uh, not only a great voice but tremendous sense of humor and personality. Miss Willsy all the time, but uh, I get to listen to him often. The top of the hour was brought to you by the Chicago Wolves. Where should you be tonight? That's right. Cheering for the Western Conference champion Chicago Wolves on opening night at Allstate Arena. To get your tickets, visit chicagowolves.com. Texts are coming in at 67011. Phone callers at 312-644-6767. And uh, we're going to talk to Mark Loretta, um, Cubs bench coach and managerial candidate. Uh, a little bit later on, right here on Inside the Clubhouse on 670 The Score. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Welcome back into Inside the Clubhouse on 670 The Score. Bottom of the hour brought to you by the Chicago Wolves. Where should you be tonight? That's right. Cheering for the Western Conference champion Chicago Wolves on opening night at Allstate Arena. To get your tickets, visit chicagowolves.com. Northwestern, Northwestern, Northwestern. Everywhere you look in managerial people these yeah, days. Well, you know, you got to get the best and the brightest, don't you? Yeah, you do. Yeah, as we uh, turn to San Diego, California, and bring in the bench coach of the Chicago Cubs, Mark Loretta, joining us on Inside the Clubhouse. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, fellas. How are you? We're doing good. Now, uh, we know you interviewed for the job on Thursday with the uh, the Cubs, and we're, we're not going to go the direction uh, 
just in you know difference to you and the procedure of asking you what transpired in that because we know that's too sensitive. But tell us a little bit about the uh, the idea of uh, getting back into coaching and and then eventually feeling like managing is something you want to do. Yeah, sure, Bruce, and I appreciate you saying that to start off. Uh, yeah, I think you know when we look back to. Uh, last winter, uh, and I got a call from from the Cubs asking if I had interest in, in bench coaching. I think that um, you know was good timing in a lot of ways. I'd, I'd spent 15 years as a player, and I'd, fit, I'd spent nine years in the front office, uh, and I think I was ready to get back on the field. And the opportunity in Chicago was was perfect fit for the family, and of course, you know, had history with Jed and Theo, and and uh, new Joe, and and so uh, we were very excited to do that, and. Uh, you know, I never. I, one of the reasons to do that was to see if I how I would take to coaching and see if I liked it. And I tell you what, guys, I I really took to it. It, it really ignited a, a passion uh, to be back in the game on a daily basis. And um, as the season went on, you know, learning from Joe, being around him for hundreds of hours, and you know, being around the guys uh, really also uh, stirred a strong desire to manage at some point. Mark, I, it, it's so interesting when you love baseball and you watch baseball and then you hear people talk about, man, guys need an edge or need intensity. And then you try to figure out how does that actually manifest? And it's kind of easier to see on the back end when you say, oh, well, that was a little sloppy or they you know, had a lot of errors. They made a lot of outs on the base paths. Maybe they weren't uh, so intense or weren't so plugged in. How does... Could you help us understand how that manifests or not uh, with a team if they're if they do or do not come to the ballpark every day with that little extra mental edge? You know, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, if, if you're winning and, and uh, you can kind of hide some of those things, I think we had you know three or four areas where we you know, need to improve for sure and need to take a hard look at. It. I think we had trouble in the bullpen early and late in the season. You mentioned the defense for sure. I think it could have been uh, much better. Uh, and also on the offensive side, you know, we just struck out way too much. I think we led the league in strikeouts. And so those three areas for me are a big concern. I don't think it's a necessarily an edge or a, a concentration issue. I think it's, you know, I have to take a look at, you know, how we practiced, uh, what our game planning was a little bit, and things like that, and make, maybe make some adjustments in those areas. But I really don't think it's about concentration or having an edge because, you know, baseball is not like football. It's not like basketball where you can just overpower a game. So you can't just get emotional and say, hey, we're going to have an edge and, and we're going to win. Sometimes that actually makes it tighter. So that's a fine line and really something hard to define. So my premise uh, on some of this, Mark, is that uh, the players earned uh, a lot of autonomy because they were a championship caliber team. And this team practices individually very hard and they're all very serious professional guys but from what i saw from the outside and you you may be can able to confirm or uh, or lead me in a different direction from what i saw from the outside they're not together enough on the field and by that i mean uh you know teams don't do infield anymore i know that's passe but uh the idea that they're working individually and not as a unit in practice maybe that has to be changed maybe there has to be more time spent together kind of like it's done in spring training for a unit to be able to come together again and understand the essence of who they are individually and as a unit. I think it's a great observation, Bruce. I think it's something that, uh, you know, we're going to take a hard look at, I think as an organization and, 
I think you're right. I think you need to have, for example, like you said, your infielders out there, um, you know, not every day, but maybe once or twice a week where there are, you know, four or five guys are working together as a unit. Um, we've had a lot of optional infield practice, a lot of optional uh, batting practice, uh, which is something I think we'll take a look at as well and see if that actually makes sense. Now, there's, there's certainly times where players need to be on their own to strength train and condition and all kinds of stuff, and it's a they're pulled in a lot of different directions. But I do think you're right. I think that team concept, the team, do some team building exercises, et cetera, and get together and practice, I think, together more often is, is, is very valid. Could that then feed situational hitting, which oftentimes uh, requires some selflessness of, of not necessarily trying to, to launch a ball, but just kind of do whatever you can to keep things going? Could that kind of camaraderie feed that, uh, that skill set? I think so, for sure. I think you need to you know, really practice situational hitting as well. And I think, um, you know, for me, um, we need to practice at game speed a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you can, you know, have maybe some, some batting practice pitchers who are, you know, are more like real pitchers yeah. uh, and do that occasionally. I, I think, uh, you know, we've, we've thought about doing that when I was in the front office in Padres. I think it's an interesting idea to look at. Um, but certainly um, the mentality of pass the baton, you know, be willing to accept the baton but also pass it to the next guy, keep the line moving, that kind of thing. Having a team offensive mindset, um, you know, I think is, is, is very valid as well. Dealing with millennial players, we hear a lot about it in all sports, in particular in baseball, which is uh, what Matt and I cover the most. Um, mm-hmm. So from the perspective of, you know, I have a millennial daughter. I understand that she needs to understand what my intent is, what I'm going to uh, ask of her sometimes, and how long will that go on for so they need details about what they do work-wise much different from the type of managers and coaches that asked you to go out there and just you know do the job when when you were a player how how does that how does that how is that dealt with and how difficult is that process I think your example is great. I, you know, I have a 17 year old and a 15 year old at home, so I, I don't know if they're quite millennials. I had to have to look at what the count is, <laughs> but they're certainly uh, they're certainly in that you know kind of age grade group. And um, there's no doubt. I mean, it, I think coaching this day and age is, is a lot like parenting. I do think uh, kids and millennials, if you want to call them, uh, need a certain amount of structure, need a schedule. They're so used to being scheduled, driven around here, going to you know, uh, travel ball games at this time, showcase here, all this stuff. So I think they really need, they crave schedule. They, they, they may not feel like it because there'll, there'll be some pushback, but I think at the end of the day, uh, they like to have it kind of laid out for them a little bit more regimented. And if, if you give them, I think, too much free time, as you know, as a parent, Bruce, uh, that can go haywire. But And yet there does need to be an accountability, a sense of accountability that's maybe mixed with some likability. And, uh, you know, is, is that something that, that might have been missing from the room? It's hard to find, and certain veterans bring it and, and certain veterans don't because it's just not in their DNA. Yeah, every year is so different. You know, you've got, you've got different veterans, you've got different players, coaches, all kinds of things. So I, I think you get a kind of a read and a sense on, on, on what the team, you know, can, can handle and is looking for. And, and certainly, you know, I don't think we, you go to a military-type style um, I don't think that's that's the way to go, but I think you know structure, accountability, mixed with you know relationships and, and love and fun. I mean, you know, you want to have fun. This game is fun. 
Um, you know, we've got some characters, uh, you know, on our staff, Tim Buss, for example, who is just fantastic with, yep. with, with team building and getting guys together and, and, and you know, you're going to have fun, but you're also going to be, you know, professionals and, and we're going to, we're going to talk about, you know, the bottom line is we got to execute. The game comes down to a series of individual plays, you make a pitch, balls hit, you make a play. So the team that executes more often than the other team generally comes out on top. Mark, uh, you know, I know you're not the hitting coach, but I know you have an expertise in hitting. You were uh, a very, very good major league player for 15 years, both defensively and offensively. But when it comes to the offensive side now, it seems like front offices, including the Cubs, want it uh, to be all-encompassing. They want guys that do have launch angle and hit home runs, as well as having a two-strike approach, an approach to right field, an approach with a man on first or second uh, to try to move a runner. Um, Everybody should be Anthony right. Rizzo, right, I mean, uh, And again, it's it's not pointed at the Cubs. It's pointed all over because we yep. see it. How realistic is that to have players who can do all these things, change bad positions, uh, just do everything within the framework of what's being demanded out there? Yeah, good question. Um, certainly not an easy thing to do. You know, Joe talks about a lot of, about your B hack, right? So I, mm-hmm. the way I think about it is you got to have more than one club in your bag. You know, you're not going to use a driver on, on the whole, on the whole course. So, right. um, you know, Matt, I think you, you mentioned Anthony Rizzo. He's tremendous at it. And, and so I think the best hitters out there, and I think, you know, teams should be looking for guys who can manipulate the barrel. I, I think hitting is, is mm. about the hands. Um, and we've talked to people, I approach you and, and Sledge and I have talked a lot about that. You know, guys like Schwarber, uh, Rizzo, those guys, you know, Castellanos at the end of the year, you know, um, just to name a few, are guys who can manipulate the barrel. They, they can hit pitches in different locations. Because what, you, what you're seeing now from some of the younger kids coming up is this launch angle revolution where it's a groove swing. And I think we, they, they pay too much attention about their swing. You know, we're not playing golf here. The, the ball's not on a tee. It's going to be... It's coming in at different angles, different speeds, different spins, all that stuff. So my focus has always been on, on you've got to hit the ball. And hitting the ball is different than swinging at it. Because when you just have a swing that's grooved, then essentially you only have one or you know two spots where if that ball's there, you're going to hit it. So I want guys who can manip- manipulate the barrel is what I call it. Yeah. Does that have to be taught earlier on? I think, I think it's an, a little bit of a natural ability. Uh, to start with, I think you need to you draft for that. You kind of look for that. <clears throat> you know, I think Nico Horner, for example, another example, uh, is a guy that you, you saw could hit a lot of different pitches in a lot of different spots, put the bat on the ball uh, on difficult pitches. So I think you draft for that, and then you develop that as well. Uh, I'm not sure if you don't have a certain ability of eye-hand coordination uh, to manipulate that barrel that, that can be taught necessarily, but it certainly can be improved. Boy, that, that's the whole thing, isn't it, Mark? We're looking at three hitting coaches in three years as we try to teach launch angle guys to be able to manipulate the barrel, and not everybody can learn it. It's, it, it reminds me of when Moneyball came out and it was like, oh, yeah, everybody should be more uh, more patient. It's hard to teach that too, <laughs> right? It, it. it's, it's like you got to find the guys who, who fit the set, and that's it's hard to keep up in baseball with the way that trends go and the way that the game evolves. Yeah, yeah, and you know, this year was interesting because I, I thought, and you, you guys observed it, the, the ball was flying as much as it's ever flown. And, and if you look at, I think Rob Manfred's come out with an article in Public Now and said, "Hey, we got to we got to take a look at the ball and maybe make some adjustments." So I think that will help because now there is such a 
um, you know, an incentive to lift the ball because the ball is just going out to the opposite field. Like, I hit about you know 75 or 80 home runs in my career. I wasn't a big home run hitter. I never hit a home run to the right of center field. Never hit an opposite field home run in my career. Now it's very, very commonplace. So, you know, I think the ball needs to be looked at, and I think once it gets back to a little bit more of a neutral area, I, I think situational hitting, moving runners, trying to get string some hits together, bunting. I thought we did a good job early in the year of laying down some, some bunts against the shift, uh, that kind of thing. So that that's when baseball, to me, um, you know, is, is at its greatest when there's action. When uh, in, in closing with you, uh, my my trainer, Colin, went to Iowa and uh, he's mm. still he's still very upset about the walk off grand slam that you hit against them uh, <laughs> in Northwest. And he said you were struck out on uh, the previous pitch. Can you, uh, Was can, that right? can you, do you remember that? I'm sure you do. And, uh, I do. Yeah, I remember it. And, I remember uh, the pitch. I, I'd have to go back. I don't think there was, uh, you know, a box on the TV like there is now that would tell <laughs> us. But, um, yeah, certainly one of the, one of my highlights of my college career for sure. But, um, tell him I apologize. Yeah, no, I know you, you don't mean it. Hey, we uh, got Mark- we got the Huskers today. It's going to be a tough one. The, the cats have been a little bit spotty this year, but anyway, yeah, they, I digress. They, they have. Hey, uh, Mark. Thanks, uh, thanks a ton for taking some time out for Matt and I and inside the clubhouse. And we wish you the best of luck. Uh, you know, it's going to be uh, maybe maybe it won't be this time. Maybe it will, but I think you're going to make a fine manager down the road. So thanks again, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. I appreciate it, guys. Take care. Thank you. That's Mark, Mark Loretta, third base, uh, the bench coach, and hopeful in his area of being the manager of the Chicago Cubs. It's interesting when you move what would be like two feet to the right, if he indeed, you know, were to get that job, mm-hmm. he's got some different thoughts. He's got plenty of different thoughts. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of them are some of the reasons why Joe Madden is not no longer the manager of the Cubs. That yep. Some of these things in Epstein and Hoyer's mind were not fulfilled. This segment was brought to you by Subway. Subway restaurants feature a different six-inch sub for three seventy-nine every day. Subway, make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied. We'll be right back on Inside the Clubhouse here on 670 The Score. It's Inside the Clubhouse on 670 The Score. Former Cub ball player and bench coach Dave Martinez Doing a hell of a job so far for the Nationals as they split two games in L.A. You weren't saying that in May. Uh, no, I wasn't. We but, were talking on our shows, uh, I think they were 19 and 29. 31, 19 and 31. Yeah. 12 games under. And uh, saying, gee, uh, who's gonna get, who are they going to get to replace Davey Martinez? Stay in the fight has um, been the mantra. Looks like a, like a deer in headlights. He, he's he's been terrific. Obviously, the attitude that they've had since then, all the way through, and in the wild card game, um, has been tremendous. And they've never given yeah. up. And then using Strasburg and Scherzer in relief, yeah. um, players just, playing up to their ability. You bet, yeah. Strasburg. He might opt out. Four years, about a hundred mil left, but he's got the opt out option. If he if he dominates this postseason like he has so far, he might get more than. Would that. you sign him for more? I mean, who would sign him for more? Somebody. So he's he's going to average twenty five million over the next four years. It goes. It's a funky contract because it goes. Yeah, it is. It goes. Uh, it's like twenty five, fifteen, ten, and then forty five. Correct. In two thousand twenty three, he will make forty five million dollars. <laughs> the learners are crazy. I know, Dad. but you know that's the genius of Scott Boris. You know. Uh, yeah, I, oh, and by the way, in twenty three, after you win two World Series. Uh-huh. 
you're going to pay him $45 million or, at age 36. Or after he's coming off his third Tommy John. That'll be when the 45 mil comes I flying guess, in. I guess that's your bonus. But he can be a free agent and opt out after this year and or next. White Sox, six years, 150 mil for Steven Strasburg. Would you give it to him? Uh, it out? We'll have to ask David Sampson. <laughs> How about Jake Odorizzi for the White Sox? That would be good. That right? would be a good sign. They they need take from the twins. You know they need their John Lester. Yes, they okay? do. And those guys may be out there, and they will be seeking them. This is Mike on the Skyway on six seventy. The score. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, guys. Bruce, it's always a pleasure to talk to you after a long week. My question is simple. After listening to uh, Doug Wills, why? What is it about the Tampa Bay organization? that is successful when the White Sox aren't? Why, why are the Rays good and we aren't good? What makes them work and tick so well? Well, I don't, I don't know if it's just the, the White Sox. Uh, you might look at a lot of different minor league systems and say, you know what, they don't do what the Rays do. They, they are, I believe, the lowest payroll in baseball at about by, $66 million. By, yeah, they're, by like $30 million. They're lowest by like $30 million. I mean, you know, consider that that's, that's half of the Harper-Machado contract that uh, they, they spread out, $66 million among 25 guys. Pretty incredible. And they keep, they keep doing it over and over again. They have really bright front office people. They have very good development people. That's a, uh, certainly a uh, franchise to admire and watch and replicate if you can. But... Um, Nonetheless, um, I don't know if it's just a White Sox problem or it's a industry-wide problem. The, the Rays do it better than most. They sure do. Um, this is Pat on the north side to wrap us up on 670 The Score. Hello, Pat. Yeah, hi, guys. Uh, Matt, uh, love you. Miss you during the week. Thanks, I have sir. two questions about the Cubs. Number one, uh, uh, contact rate. They were the worst in the majors. Yeah. And uh, I just saw in Mr. Wittenmeyer today that they've made 97 uh, outs on the bases after reaching first base safely. That seems like an awful... Well, they were number one, you're right. Number one in baseball with making outs on the base pass, Bruce. Right. Um, And he didn't even acknowledge me. (laughs) It's your show. It's about time. It's about time. (laughs) About time we had one of those the other direction. Um, No, and contact rate, you bet, Theo said, we we certainly are losing the contact battle. Some of that conversation we had with Mark Loretta was about how to do it with your hitters and with your roster. Better get some different players, too. I think that is going to happen. Matt, it was fun. We have people to thank no no one more than Zach Withers, who does a sensational job for us every week producing this show. Dave Wills of the Tampa Rays, the voice of the Rays, joined us, as did Mark Loretta, a candidate for the Cubs manager's job. People can t- contact me at on Twitter at MLB Bruce Levine, writing Cubs and Sox, everything baseball on our website, 670thescore.com. Matt, I'll see you next week. Bruce, thank you so much. Steve Rosenblum is next with David Schuster. Right here on 670 The Score. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? 
Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.